This is Faith Ignited, the podcast where we put God back into history. Episode 11, The Light Here Kindled. A remarkable sense of nostalgia stole over to Squantum, his feet moving almost soundlessly across the earth. The tall, sturdy trees, lush undergrowth, and scent of the sea were all so wonderfully familiar to his senses. How many times had he envisioned this moment? Five years in England had changed him a great deal, not just physically. His eyes had been opened to new sights, his ears to new languages, and his heart to a new faith. Yet nothing seemed more beautiful in that moment than the prospect of being reacquainted with the places and people of his past. And here he was, just a matter of feet from his home, his people. The familiarity tugged at his memories, calling them from the recessed corners of his mind to play out before his eyes. He saw himself as a boy running through the brush, and as a young man hunting with his friends and pulling fish from the ocean. Never had he imagined then the dreadful twist of fate that was to come. Those dark images were much harder to repress. He couldn't forget the weeks he'd spent locked away in the belly of a ship, with 23 other men, barely given enough food and water to survive, while they agonized over their unknown fate. Then the fear and despair that gripped him as he stood during the slave auction in Malaga, Spain. No, those events following his capture would always haunt him. During that time, he'd often wondered if he would ever see his home and loved ones again. But he was here now and the fact that his feet were tracing the path to his village was dizzying and surreal. What would his family say when they saw him? Would they weep? Would they all listen in rapture to the retelling of his miraculous deliverance when Spanish monks had bought his freedom, his conversion to Catholicism and his tales of England? Or would his work as a translator aboard the English ships enthrall them? Tisquantum's brow suddenly furrowed, his stride slowing as he noted that the air was unnervingly still, His well-trained ears noticed that the noises generally associated with a community of people were completely absent. No conversation, no movement, no hint of smoke lingering from the campfires. As his gaze dropped, he noted that the paths had been overgrown as well, suggesting no use. Icy perspiration dotted to Squantum's forehead. Had the Patuxet relocated? If so, what had been the reason for their departure? Coming into the clearing, Tisquantum stopped, horrified by what he saw. Only abandonment and disarray met his gaze. Nothing had been packed and carried away. Weeds choked the once-tended land, the crops and dwellings left to ruin. Skeletal remains laid strewn about, the only indication as to the fate of the Patuxet tribe. He could hear Thomas Dermer, the captain of the ship that had carried him back to the New World, approach from behind could sense both his revulsion and his concern. They're all... dead? He asked in a hushed whisper. Tisquantum didn't speak, couldn't summon words. This was no battle, Thomas concluded. Disease, most likely. Grief sat like a crushing weight on Tisquantum's chest as he began wandering through the shattered remains of his home. They were gone. Everyone was gone. He realized somewhere amid his mental anguish that his capture had delivered him from this fate, but that did nothing to console him. After everything he'd been through, 
After all the suffering that had led to this moment, this was the apex of it all. It was as though he was drowning, sinking deeper and deeper into despair, grasping around for something, anything to hold on to, something to hope for. Suddenly, like a single beam of light breaking through the suffocating blackness of his sorrow, he remembered the words the monks had spoken about life after death. Death was not the end, he reminded himself. Faith promised that the reunion he longed for would come, even if not in the time he had hoped for. And while his future was more unclear now than ever, he had to trust that there was a God in heaven who would not fail him. Sometimes when I study history, I feel like I just sat down to analyze an extraordinary game of chess. One that's masterfully and perfectly arranged for victory. Some stories are just so totally improbable and require so much arranging that you feel dizzy just trying to comprehend it all. And it's those examples that make me realize that we'd have to be blind not to recognize that there is a God. A brilliant God who comprehends all things. This is one of those stories. In previous episodes, we've discussed a few aspects to the miraculous founding of America. And now we're going to take a step back, and it doesn't begin on American soil. It starts in England. In the 1500s, religion was a source of great dispute and controversy. As countries broke away and the Reformation began sweeping the continent, Roman Emperor Charles V realized that he could not continue to fight invasion from the outside as well as try to put a stop to Protestant Reformation on the inside. They needed to find some way to come to a consensus, form some degree of peace. And so his new approach can be summed up by a Latin phrase from the Peace of Augsburg Treaty. It was cuius regio ejus religo, which means whose is the reign, he is the religion. Put simply, the religion of a country was determined by the religion of their king. So England was Anglican, Switzerland Calvinist, Scotland Presbyterian, and so on. But time would prove that the power of an earthly king can only go so far. They can't dictate the loyalties of someone's heart. So the battle of faith and reform began. The monarch ruling England during this period was a man named King Henry VIII. He's most famous for having six wives that he ended up either divorcing or beheading. <laughs> Henry had been married to his first wife, Catherine, for 18 years, and she still had not born a son. Wanting an heir, Henry decided that he was going to divorce her. But when the Pope refused to recognize the divorce, Henry concluded that he just needed to start his own church. One where he would be the greatest authority, and there wouldn't be anyone else to answer to. And that's how the Church of England began. But they were still reading from the Latin Bible, and Henry's advisors told him that if he was going to break away from Rome and Catholicism, he needed an English Bible. Ironically, it was just a couple of years before this that Henry had ordered William Tyndall to be burned at the stake. His crime? Translating the Bible into English. Tyndall's last words before he was executed were a prayer. Lord, he cried, open the king of England's eyes. Then, just a few years down the road, King Henry VIII ends up commissioning a Bible to be translated into English. A man named Miles Coverdell 
ends up heading this project, and he uses a lot of Tyndall's work in creating this English Bible. Now, this moment was revolutionary. For the first time ever, the common English people had access to the Bible in their own language. So after this English Bible comes out, King Henry VIII feels like the matter is settled, that England is now completely separate from Rome, and that's the end of it. But it actually marked the beginning of a remarkable chain of events. With access to the Word of God now, people did something that apparently the king hadn't expected. They started to actually read it, and it started to plant new ideas in their minds. They compared the teachings of the Bible to the practices of both their king and the Church of England, and this gave rise to a group that wanted to purify the church by returning to biblical principles. These people were called Puritans. Another group went beyond that, saying that the church was past purifying, that they needed to be separate completely from the Church of England, and they were called separatists. We call them pilgrims. Now, in the king's mind, any act against the Church of England was a direct threat to him at its head. So these people were not just heretics, but they were traitors. The penalty for which was very severe. If you were caught so much as praying something unauthorized, meaning anything that was not found in the Book of Common Prayer, you would be arrested and brought to a place they called the Star Chamber, because of the stars on the ceiling, where you'd be interrogated, forced to confess, having your ear cut off, and be branded on the face as a heretic. To make matters worse, they passed the Conventicle Act, which originates from the word covenant, and it would later be renamed the Riot Act. So this law made any unauthorized religious meetings illegal because the king worried that people could be planning insurrections in their Bible studies. So if this came to the attention of the authorities, they would show up, break up the Bible study, and read them the Riot Act. That's where that term comes from. Now, flash forward to 1590. King James I is now King of England, and a man named William Bradford was born in a farming community in Yorkshire, England. Despite his parents being quite wealthy, his childhood was a very difficult one. He became an orphan at just seven years old, and would end up being raised by his relatives. There was a time during his childhood where he had very poor health, and was too weak to work the family farm, so instead he spent his time doing a lot of reading, especially the Bible, something that set him on a course for seeking Christ the rest of his life. When he was only 12, he happened to be in a neighboring town where he witnessed his first Puritan church service. He was impressed both by their fellowship and their fervor for change. He went back again and again. By the time he was 17, he was entirely committed to the need to get back to Bible teachings. But it was a perilous time to be opposing the Church of England. King James was ordering separatist leaders to be hunted and imprisoned. Bradford himself spent 30 days in the cells at Boston Guildhall after being caught holding secret religious meetings and planning escape from England. Now, this brings us to one of the largest misconceptions about the Pilgrims. We often see them as a bedraggled group fleeing England, climbing onto ships left with no other choice but to seek refuge in America, and that's just not historically accurate. Before they even contemplated going to America, 
they first immigrated to the Netherlands. They stayed briefly in Amsterdam, then moved to Leiden, where they lived for 12 years. Now, that's a long time. William Bradford said of Leiden that God had allowed them to, quote, come as near the primitive pattern of the first churches as any other church in these later times. Edward Winslow, another voyager on the Mayflower, recalled that God had blessed them with, quote, much peace and liberty in Holland, and they hoped to find, quote, like liberty in their new home. So the real question is, why did they make the choice to come to America? Well, there were several factors that ultimately inspired their decision. The blessing of tolerance in Leiden also came with its drawbacks, because they tolerated everything, whether that was extreme religious observance or the complete opposite, base irreligion. And the pilgrims feared that the immoral and wicked practices of their neighbors were corrupting their children. The threat of war was a possibility too with the end of the 12-year truce in Spain. But one of the main concerns was their financial situation. They feared that the lack of jobs and their struggle to make a living might lead to the breakup of their church. So there definitely were some challenges with their life in Holland. But you still wonder that they were willing to trade a possible war sometime down the road for the almost certain conflict that was going to exist between them and the Native Americans if they went to America. So this leads me to wonder, were they really running from something, or were they running to something? Before they left Holland, the pilgrims came together for a special service. One member present said of the experience, The Lord was solemnly sought in the congregation by fasting and prayer to direct us. By the end of the meeting, they had come to a decision. They would go to America. Their pastor, John Robinson, drafted a letter stating the reason for the voyage. The principal reason he gave was that, quote, We verily believe and trust the Lord is with us, and that he will graciously prosper our endeavors, and we are knit together in a body in a most strict and sacred bond and covenant of the Lord. William Bradford also said that their move to America was motivated by, quote, a great hope and inward zeal of laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto, for propagating and advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. Now, it's important to understand that the pilgrims as Puritans believed that they were living in what the scriptures referred to as the last days the period of time before Christ would return. Pilgrim historian Rebecca Fraser said, The Pilgrim Church believed that they had a covenant like the Jewish people of old. Their comparison was the working of God's will to save the chosen people in the Old Testament. They constantly looked to the Bible for guiding principles. The Pilgrims went so far as to call themselves New Israel. So when they stepped aboard the Mayflower, it was a great act of faith. The journey across the ocean took them 66 days, and in total, there were 102 passengers and 30 crewmen. Their intended destination was Jamestown, Virginia, but that didn't end up being where they landed. Weather pushed them off course, and they landed on the coast of Cape Cod in the state that we now call Massachusetts. They arrived December 16, 1620. But coming into this harsh land in the wintertime, with no experience, 
just about destroyed this little band of religious followers. Their supplies quickly dwindled, and by March, half of them had already died. Then, something incredible happened. God sent them a miracle in the most unlikely of forms. A cold breeze penetrated the walls of the rough-hewn cabin, cutting through William's coat and shirt tails and causing him to shiver. He set down his quill, closing his journal and rubbing his hands together to try and bring feeling back into them. He was so tired of feeling cold. His heart was heavy as he wished Dorothy were there to place her hands in his. Every day he thought of her. When he'd left with the scouting party sent to scope out the new land, he hadn't realized that he'd be saying goodbye for the final time. It had come as a terrible shock when upon his return, he learned that his wife had fallen overboard and drowned in the icy waves. He shook his head as though it could erase the memory and rose to his feet, stepping outside. Though it was March and the weather was growing milder by the day, he could see members of the community huddled around small fires, drawing jackets and blankets around themselves to protect against the wind. Most looked gaunt and disheartened, and William reminded himself that many of them too had lost loved ones since their arrival. If not for the stashes of corn they'd found buried by the area's last inhabitants, who'd left the place abandoned, it was likely none of them would have survived even until now. A murmur of fear suddenly rippled through the gathering, the men starting to their feet. William turned around to determine the source of everyone's distress. A Native American man, tall, straight, and smooth-faced, with long black hair down his back, strode into their midst. William had heard tale of conflicts between the Native and English peoples, many of which had not ended well, and with all of them so weakened by starvation, disease, and harsh conditions, they'd feared a possible attack. But while this lone figure was bold, he didn't seem antagonistic. He held a bow, but his quiver was empty, and he wore only a fringed loincloth and moccasins. Then suddenly, he did something that stunned all present. Welcome, Englishman, he said, his accent strong, but his words clear. Welcome. William balked. Did his ears deceive him, or had the native man just spoken to them in English? William came cautiously forward, returning his greeting. The man, William learned, was called Somerset, and he'd been visiting a nearby tribe. He also said that he'd had long-standing relations with the English and European traders, where he'd learned to speak some English. Though his English was terribly broken, he was surprisingly friendly and open. He spoke to them about the local region and tribes, explaining that disease had killed the tribe who'd once lived where the pilgrims now occupied, and that a lone survivor named Squanto spoke much better English than himself, he having lived in England. Samoset left, but returned several days later with the man called Squanto. Squanto's eyes were serious but kind. He had the look of a man who had endured much. As promised, Squanto's English was impeccable, and William wondered about the circumstances that had led to his fluency. Not only did he speak English very well, but seemed familiar with English customs. It seemed too remarkable, too unlikely to be credited to chance. God had provided a way to open up communication between them and their Indian brothers, and with how desperate their situation was, it had come just in time. Squanto, or Tisquantum, was a remarkable person, 
with a complex and painful past. He was raised in the area today known as Plymouth, Massachusetts, in the Patuxet Band of the Wampanoag tribe. Having gone aboard an English ship to make a potential treaty, he and 23 other Native American men were taken captive, locked below deck, and sold at a local slave market in Spain. Miraculously, Squanto's freedom was purchased by a group of monks who took him to their monastery. They nursed him back to health, taught him Spanish, and also taught him about Jesus Christ. After his baptism into the Catholic faith, Squanto made his way to England, where he knew he'd be more likely to find passage back to America. He spent several years working in London and, of course, learned English. Finally, he was able to barter passage on a ship that would take him home, agreeing that he would work as an interpreter for them. But when he returned, he found that his entire tribe had been wiped out by disease, contracted from contact with white settlers. Heartbroken, Squanto went to live with a neighboring tribe. Then, just a year later, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, the only unoccupied spot in the region, since no other tribes wanted to go back to the area where there had been so much disease. Not long after they initially met Squanto, Chief Massasoit came to the pilgrim settlement, where they formed a peace treaty that lasted more than 50 years, longer than any other peace treaty made between the Native Americans and English in pre-United States history. It was honored throughout the lives of everyone who signed it. Squanto, of course, acted as the interpreter. But beyond helping them create peaceful relations with neighboring tribes, Squanto stayed with the pilgrims, continuing to act as their interpreter, advisor, and guide. They were on the brink of starvation when Squanto showed up. Their rations had dwindled to five corn kernels a day per person. And one of the first things that Squanto did after meeting the pilgrims was go fishing. And he brought them back as much eel as he could carry, which as you can imagine, they were very grateful for. He taught them how to fish, how to plant corn, using fish to fertilize the soil. No matter how you dice it, Squanto was a savior to the pilgrims. Someone who braved terrible trials that enabled him to rescue them. He's yet another type of Christ found in history. And yet the part that I find the most miraculous is that Squanto was willing to help them in the first place. Here this group of Englishmen were building basically on the graves of his people. He could have so easily just let them die. Maybe even seen it as justice for the white people bringing diseases with them. But he didn't. Squanto clearly didn't hold on to bitterness. He didn't turn against the pilgrims, and more importantly, he didn't turn against God. William Bradford described Squanto as a special instrument, sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. And that's exactly what he was, a perfectly crafted tool in the hands of the Almighty. He was a true friend to them until the very end and an incredible example of brotherly love that crossed the chasm of racial barriers and cultural differences. That is the message of Thanksgiving. The miracles of God that saved the pilgrims' lives. The gathering of two people in peace to recognize the bounty of God. The beautiful thing about the past is that it gives us perspective and helps us to realize that trials often prepare us for a great work. Were it not for Squanto's capture, well, first of all, he would have died with his tribe. Secondly, he wouldn't have learned English. 
and he arrived back just in time to help the pilgrims, who weren't even planning on coming that far north in the first place. But what was the significance of them landing farther north? Would it not have been better if they just landed in Jamestown like they'd intended? Well, for one thing, landing up north gave them a chance to set the precedent for morality and government. But I don't think the true impact of what happened in 1620 can be seen until over 200 years later, when the country found itself in the midst of a civil war. The ideals of the North and the South were in harsh conflict, and led America to question its very identity. Were we gold-seeking Jamestown, whose greatest priority was wealth, even if that meant using slaves to propel themselves into prosperity? Or were we Plymouth, with their zeal for civil and religious freedom, and their talk of modern Israel? When Abraham Lincoln sent out his Thanksgiving proclamation in 1863, one of only a handful of presidents who ever did that, he said, We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined, in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. The Civil War marked a return not just to America's commitment to freedom, but commitment to God. It was America turning its heart back to Plymouth. Do you see what I mean when I say it's like a complex game of chess? The Pilgrims almost died that first winter, but instead, their influence went on to change not just the future of America, but to influence the world. William Bradford put it this way, As one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled hath shone unto many. On William Bradford's gravestone, there is a carved inscription below his name that's written in Latin. It translates to, what our forefathers with so much difficulty secured, do not basely relinquish. It's understanding the price that was paid for what we now enjoy that fills us with thanksgiving, that changes our perspective and ignites our faith. <laughs> <laughs>